Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. The problem with Napa Valley is, if they were cheaper, no other wine would exist because they are so delicious and everyone would want to drink them. He opened for me a vertical tasting every single vintage. And so that was a very long day, a tough day, but a very good day at the end. Me alone with uh, 41 different bottles. Fine wine is not defined by region anymore. And if that's the reality, our duty is to embrace it. It is the new reality. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our March 31st, 2023 issue. Our cover story features a wide-ranging look at the future of wine in America, from the vineyard to the bottle. Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News Mitch Frank will be chatting with us later on that subject, along with highly quotable California winemaker Dan Petrosky, owner of Napa Valley's Masakan Winery. Our March issue also includes my annual Bordeaux tasting report. We'll be talking about the 2020 vintage hitting retail shelves now, and hearing from the winemaker behind one of my top-rated wines of the vintage. And Dr. Vinny will be here to administer a little Bordeaux booster. But first, kicking the episode off with me is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Thank you, James. Another exciting episode in the making for sure. And we've got some action brewing out there in the real world, too. Wine Spectator's Grand Tour Super Tasting is back, featuring more than 200 wines from around the world, all rated 90 points or higher by our editors. It kicks off in Hollywood, Florida, April 15th. Then it's on to Chicago, April 22nd, before the final stop in Las Vegas, April 29th. Tickets are on sale now at grandtour.winespectator.com. Thanks for mentioning that, Rob. Hopefully those haven't sold out. The Napa Cabernet lineup alone is worth the price of admission. You're going to be able to taste the wines from the likes of Camus, Diamond Creek, Etude, Stag's Leap, just to name a few. Speaking of big-time Cabernet-based reds, let's jump right into the Bordeaux chapter of this episode. As usual, you tasted hundreds of wines from the current vintage, in this case 2020. But there's a conspicuous absence this year. Care to explain? Nothing gets by you, Rob. (laughs) It's true, but let's back it up a little bit for some perspective first. Now, as you and our regular listeners recall, all of Wine Spectator's official tastings are conducted blind in our New York and Napa tasting rooms. When I sit down to review a flight of wines, I don't know who made them or what they cost. That's the bedrock of our tasting methodology and the core of our commitment to consumers. We aren't playing favorites here. Blind tasting, we think, is the only ethical approach to assessing a wine's quality. Yes, yes, highest standards of journalism and all that. Now spill the tea. Okay, well, this year, a few chateaus chose not to submit their wines to our blind tasting review process. Namely, the five first gross of the Medoc. That's Chateaus Mouton and Lafitte Rothschild, along with Latour, Margot, and Hobriand. They did invite me to come taste the wines at their chateaus, and that's something I do pretty regularly, whether it's in Napa or France or Portugal or whatever region that I might be happening to to tour. Mm -hmm. But my official wine reviews are never based on those in-person tastings. Wine Spectator's strict blind tasting protocol applies to all of our reviews, and we don't make exceptions, even for the most famous wines in the world. Hey, rules are rules. To paraphrase a popular slogan of the times, sounds to me like somebody found out. (laughs) Well, we hope they change their minds for the benefit of the consumers, if nothing else. If you'd like to read James's full reaction to the first gross decision not to participate in our blind tastings, 
Don't miss his column in the March issue or at winespectator.com. All right, let's turn our attention to the chateaus that did submit their wines for review. Starting with Chateau Pichon Longueville Comtesse de la Lande, a.k.a. Pichon la Lande or Pichon Comtesse for short. We have General Director Nicolas Glumineau joining us today. And we also have Mathieu Chadronnet, president of one of Bordeaux's most influential wine merchants, CVBG. Mathieu is a young, dynamic player in the market and also makes a wine with his wife, Anne Laurence, at their own Chateau Marsal property. And we also have Wine Spectator's longtime Bordeaux-based contributing editor, Suzanne Mustasich. Suzanne has been writing for Wine Spectator for well over a decade, and she's the author of Thirsty Dragon, a provocative and in-depth look at Bordeaux's relationship with China. Welcome to Straight Talk, Suzanne. Hi, James. Hi, Rob. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to get into some juicy Bordeaux topics a little later, but let's give folks a quick rundown on the 2020 vintage. Now, I found uh, some superb wines in 2020, but it's not an across-the-board, buy-at-will type of vintage. It doesn't have the consistency of 2009 or 2010, the latter there being the benchmark for Bordeaux right now, nor is it quite as electric as 2015 was on the right bank or 2016 on the left bank. Absolutely. What you're tasting is a reflection of the growing season. A mild winter, wet spring, and early flowering, all pointing to an early vintage. Then comes a hot, dry summer, 54 days of drought. So water stress was obviously going to be an issue for certain terroirs. When it came time to the harvest, anyone who was picking during the first part of September had warm, dry conditions, so perfect. But by late September and early October, it was cooler and wetter. Yeah, a little bit of a wonky growing season, so not every vineyard performed well. But most of the ones that did are in the upper Medoc. Specifically, San Estef, Poyek, and San Julian, I think, are ground zero for quality in this vintage, along with some choice parts of Pomerol and Saint-Emilion over on the right bank. One of my top-scoring 2020s comes from pichon Lalande in Poyac. Now, this property has had its ups and downs and zigs and zags over the years, both in terms of style and quality. But since director Nicolas Glumineau came over from Chateau Montrose in 2013, He's charted a very specific course for the estate, and I think his track record now, after a decade at Lalande, is very, very impressive. It certainly is. I recently visited him at Pichon Lalande, and he spoke about his first days on the job and the unforgettable tasting that shaped his approach. When I reached Pichon Comtesse in 2012, like all of us, I had this image of a winery located in Poyac, but famous for having much more Merlot in the blend of the vintages made in, famous vintages made in the past. And after a day, I don't know, after three or four days, once I, I reached this, uh, this estate, I asked the cellar master to open a vertical tasting for me. And uh, I was expecting him to open 10, 12 different vintages and actually, he opened for me a vertical tasting starting with the 1970 to 2010, every single vintage. And so that was a very long day, a tough day, but a very good day at the end. Me alone with uh, 41 different bottles and uh, uh, in my room. So uh, I took time, something like five hours long, to taste each of them. And then I asked the technical team to, to join me just to share. And that was a good moment. And to me, this tasting was fundamental because uh, my favorite Pichon Comtesse or much more Poyac style than I could expect. It's not Margot or Pomerol style with all the, 
the, the respect I have for, for those wines, but we are in Poyac, finally. Those vintages that I really enjoyed, they were much more caps of. They were a minimum of 75% Cabernet Sauvignon in the blend. So I could figure out that we really had a difference between the communication and the reputation and the truth. So Nicola also shared his thoughts on recent vintages, including an uplifting counter-narrative to the labor shortage fears we were facing for the 2020 harvest. 2020 will be a memorable vintage for us, for me, for many reasons, not only uh, because of the, uh, the crisis due to COVID. It was frightening because the question was how and where can we find people to work in the vineyard? You know, seasonal workers. And afterwards, it's probably the easiest vintage in terms of hiring people that we have had those last 10 to 15 years. Accountants, teachers, waiters, I don't know who, but some people who needed to work. And the atmosphere in the vineyard was so good afterwards. It was very quiet everywhere. Not a, the single noise of a car or nothing but the birds. But in the vine, in plots, some people working, uh, singing, and everybody was very happy to be with us because it was so unusual for them to work in the vineyard. And afterwards, uh, and after all, why not in the vineyard? If I, I have nothing to do else than waiting for this crisis to, to reach an end, I do work for Pichon Comtesse or for the neighbors. In our unfortunate, we were fortunate enough to, to, to make a great vintage. I'm about to tell you that once again in 2022, we have made a milestone wine. I think we have made this year the best Merlot ever. Ever. Surprisingly. I mean, that makes no sense. And believe me, this year's... I mean, if someone tells you why the wine is so good, I, I need to, 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 to go back to school. I need him to be my teacher. Don't ask me why the wine is so good. I just don't know. Another point, which is probably very important, but I just can't measure the impact of it. We're used to say that 2003 was a very hot vintage, very warm. But it was warm during four weeks. 22 was dry and warm during four months. And probably, as we have adapted ourselves to climate change, maybe the, the, the vine is doing the same. Well, thank you for, for bringing us your stories from Pichon Comtesse. Thank you for joining us at Straight Talk. It's a pleasure. When Glumino says best Merlot ever, that's a bit of an eye-opener. I don't like to speculate on a vintage before I've tasted it, but I'm not surprised the Bordelais are buzzing about 2022 already. They do that every year, though, right? Yeah, just about. They're actually not hyping 2021, though, which I think is telling, because the Place de Bordeaux tends to spin most vintages fairly positively. And on that subject, Suzanne, why don't you catch us up on some changes happening there on the Place de Bordeaux? 
Well, the most fascinating development has been how the Place de Bordeaux has transformed itself into a trading platform for international fine wine. Until fairly recently, the Bordeaux negociants only sold wines from Bordeaux. But what started as a trickle a few years ago has turned into a major business stream on the Place. Quickly for the uninitiated, the Place de Bordeaux is where negociants sell their annual allotments of each new vintage to retailers and restaurateurs around the world. And they also buy and sell to one another. And the ones with deep pockets maintain stocks of older vintages for sale as well. And while we call it the Place, it's not an actual place. It's more like a stock market for wine. Exactly. It's a system that's been around for hundreds of years. It's resilient, nimble, and crucially open to new clients. In a nutshell, the chateaus make the wines and they sell them to the negociants via a courtier or broker. And from there, the negociants handle the rest. Some negociants also buy grapes, juice, or generic finished wine, which they then bottle as brand wine, or as we say in Bordeaux, a negoce wine. So a wine that isn't attached to a chateau. And interestingly, after those hundreds of years working only with Bordeaux wines, the Place is now also driving the distribution of Super Tuscans, Rare Burgundies, Napa Cabernets, and more. It's astonishing how quickly it's taken off. I spoke with negociant Mathieu Chadronnier, the president of CVBG, so a big player on the Place, and one of the main drivers in this new trend. He's very much a forward thinker, and he has some interesting things to say. Welcome to Straight Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Susan. Let's talk about the market for Bordeaux wine. First of all, how many bottles of wine does Bordeaux produce and where is it all going? Well, the production in Bordeaux has been diminishing over the years, but it remains extremely substantial. We're looking at more than 500 million bottles produced every year, so it is very substantial. Bordeaux is going everywhere. So where do American wine lovers fit into the Bordeaux business? Well, America has always been a very important country for France overall, and has been a very important market for Bordeaux forever, almost. For a long time, it was the biggest export destination. I mean, um, then, of course, Asia is a huge part of the world. Um, and with the rise of China as a, a market, uh, China has become the number one export market for Bordeaux. And for some time, the U.S. had been kind of losing ground, or actually Bordeaux was losing ground in the U.S. And now we can see, since the last five, seven years, the U.S. being back as a major export market for Bordeaux. And, and today it's definitely the second biggest export market for Bordeaux. So it's important. So no, 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 it's not important. It's vital. Bordeaux's export markets have always been buffeted by world events, trade wars, fluctuating currencies that have nothing to do with wine. What kind of pressures or challenges are you navigating in 2023? So many that we're really getting used to it. Um, pressures now are inflation. Some estates can absorb these costs. For others, that is difficult. Uh, so that's one. And the other one is, um, well, interest rates. We're in a business that needs to finance a lot of inventory. Uh, we have a huge investment in our inventory. And then there's everything that is not even beyond our control, but just let's just remember that we're on the 2nd of February today. A year ago, exactly, 
we didn't think that it was realistically possible that Russia would invade Ukraine. So we, we live in a world that is populated by black swans. Well, that brings us to one of the most interesting developments on the Place de Bordeaux, the wholesale trading of non-Bordeaux wines, and that means any wine not produced in, in Bordeaux. Not that long ago, it would have been considered scandalous, frankly, to sell non-Bordeaux wines as a Bordeaux negociant, but not today. How did that come about? Well, as a famous American singer said, the times there are changing. And actually, they have changed. Fine wine is not defined by region anymore. And if that's the reality, our duty is to embrace it. And that's why this is not scandalous to sell non-Bordeaux wines in Bordeaux. Actually, we call them beyond Bordeaux. It is the new reality. How did this start gaining momentum? It starts in 1998, when the inaugural vintage of Almaviva the joint venture between Baroness Philippine de Rothschild of Mouton Rothschild and Concha y Toro in Chile is launched. So commercial launch is 98. In 2004, Opus One, arguably one of the most well-established fine wine producer and brands from Napa, chooses to change their distribution and switch it to Bordeaux. Six years between Almaviva and Opus One. In 2009, five years later, a producer that is non-related to Bordeaux, Masetto, from Italy. So we had those three pioneers, and then every year there was, for some time, there was another one, Solaya, Hommage à Jacques Perrin, Close Palta, Verité from the Jackson family, and, 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 and now we're up to, I don't even know how many... Uh, fine wine brands from beyond Bordeaux are sold by Laplace. It's maybe close to 100 now. I mentioned that Chadronnier is one of the more dynamic players on Bordeaux's Place. He's also one of the youngest, relatively. He's in his mid-40s, which is pretty young to be in the position that he's in. And it's interesting to watch his injection of youth and forward thinking into the rather staid Place. Bordeaux and beyond, indeed. Thanks for joining us today, Suzanne, and thanks for bringing Nicolas and Mathieu to Straight Talk. Thanks for having me, guys, and for now... Au revoir. For more of Suzanne's work, listeners can check out WineSpectator.com for her articles and videos, including last week's coverage of a $150 million counterfeit wine bust in China and some dramatic grape grower protests in Bordeaux. Never a dull moment in Bordeaux, but also a lot to digest, which is convenient, Rob, because I think it's time for your appointment with Dr. Vinny. I can't believe how much time I've been spending at the doctor. <laughs> Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Well, hello there, Rob. It looks like you're here for your Bordeaux booster. That's right, Doc. And left. There's a right bank, but not a wrong bank. There's Cabernet. There's Merlot. It's a lot. Mm. For the sake of this visit, let's stick to the reds, please. But I know there are some world-class whites and dessert wines, too. It is a good idea to stick to the reds, which are the majority of Bordeaux's production right now, even though that wasn't always the case. So the traditional red grapes of Bordeaux are Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, and Petit Verdot. 
And they're usually blended together, often with either Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon making up the bulk of the blend. That's what they mean when they say a wine is a Bordeaux-style blend. And you'll probably remember that from our Cabernet chat in episode two. I do. A lot of people don't know this, but Merlot is actually the most widely planted grape by a wide margin, followed by Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. But the majority of the highest-priced wines, those are Cabernet-based blends. Not that there aren't some astronomically priced Merlots as well. And there are some new grapes too, right? Yes. So most of them are pretty obscure, but you've probably heard of the red grape Tariga Nacional and the white grape Alvarino. Last year, both of those were approved, along with a few others, for their suitability to Bordeaux's warming climate. So are the Bordelais making Cabernet Tariga blends now? Not exactly. Last year was the first year they could be planted, and their usage is highly restricted in this opening experimental phase. For now, the Bordelais remain firmly committed to their classic blends. Okay, now take me to the banks. Well, they're river banks. You know that, right? Ah, I should have sung Take Me to the River. Ah, wait. Al Green or Talking Heads? I'd have butchered it either way. Moving along. So red wines from Bordeaux's left bank are usually dominated by Cabernet Sauvignon. As for the left bank subregions or appellations... Wait, let me practice my French. The key left bank appellations to know are... Saint-Estephe, Poillac, Saint-Julien, Margaux, Pesac-Léonion, and Graves. No, don't say the S. And Graves. Well done, Rob. And you even rattled those off from north to south. Listen, I I know you wanted to focus on red wines, but Bordeaux's two top dessert wine appellations, Sauterne and Barsac, they're also on that left bank. Sweet. Oh, I see what you did there. Well, so then on the right bank, Merlot is the reigning grape. And those key appellations, any guesses? Saint-Emilion and Pomerol. (laughs) Bravo, Rob. It's almost as if you watched James's ABCs of Bordeaux video at WineSpectator.com before you came to see me. All I can say is I'll never get Bordeaux of asking you about wine. And I'll never get Bordeaux of your wine puns. For more of my friendly advice, check out my full archives for free. All the Dr. Vinny columns are online, and you can always email us your questions. Or jokes. Email us your jokes. <laughs> That's right, at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Cheers. Hey there, Rob. Now that you're back from the doctor's office, maybe you could get back to work. This episode is not going to produce itself. (laughs) James, nothing would make me happier, especially since Mitch is carrying all the weight in this segment. That is the truth. As we mentioned earlier, the cover story for Wine Spectator's March issue is The Future of Wine. And it was written by none other than Straight Talk regular and senior editor for news, Mitch Frank. Welcome back, Mitch. Hey, gentlemen. Sorry I missed the doctor. So, Mitch, we've got a copy of the March issue here. And all I have to do is look at the cover illustration to know that the future of wine must start in the vineyard. Well, then that's an effective cover. Uh, Seriously, though, if you talk to any winemaker, they will tell you that the future of wine starts with viticulture. That's because wine's two biggest challenges are going to be adapting to a changing climate and attracting new consumers. You talked to a lot of wine pros for this story from all corners of the industry, one of them being Napa winemaking iconoclast and Masakan winery founder Dan Petrosky. I'm guessing he had some interesting thoughts? 
Dan always has thoughts. Uh, he thinks vintners need to focus less on specific grapes like Cabernet and more on specific terroirs like Napa. As the climate changes, we might have to think about different grapes, but the terroir will always be great. Dan, thanks for joining me. First off, thank you, Mitch, for having me. It's great to see you, and um, it's, a, <laughs> it's always a great time to uh, sit down and chat with you. Talking to people in wine... The number one issue when you ask about the future has to be the climate. How big a concern with the growers you talk to is the climate, and how are they adapting to it? If you were to read the press in the last five years, um, climate's not only a wine problem, it's an agricultural problem, it's a planet problem. The problem I see with climate change is not that it's going to make bad wine, it's going to make us have to evolve and change our practices. It's going to have to make us and, and break our beliefs that this one particular grape variety that the consumers have kind of pigeonholed us into of Cabernet or Pinot Noir, Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc is the only thing that will be relevant to who we are and what we do and where it comes from. I think the idea of the place needs to transcend the idea of what comes from the place and in, when Napa and Sonoma in California, which is relatively new in the, in the grand scheme of wine growing, when we start to evolve our agriculture over time based on the climate changing conditions, I still think we're going to dominate the world with high quality and high price point. I do think that we as a, a community of wine grape growers have to understand that there are things that we've done to our soils um, over time and through our plants and to our bodies of chemical use that has to be addressed. Did we know we were doing this 20 or 30 years ago? No. Did we know it was going to be harmful for us? No. Do we know today? Yes. If we know today, we can't go to our next generation and say we didn't know. If wine is about quality and consistency over time and it's generational, we have to be, this is when we have to take something precious. A bottle of wine is not precious. Our land is precious. That's what produces the wine. Is it a tool for us to make higher quality wines over time? I do believe that. I do believe that treating your soils in a way is going to help build a more resilient grape vine. And if we can't manage soil resiliency for vine resiliency um, to help combat what Mother Nature throws at us from above, and that's the rain, the heat, the drought, the wildfire, if we can't do that from the ground up, then we then we're really in trouble. There's a huge debate right now on whether younger consumers are ignoring wine because they have so many other choices and whether wineries are failing to market to them. It's not that simple. We've seen these cycles before. In the 1980s, America had two recessions and young baby boomers were interested in light beer and wine coolers. The French paradox and the prosperity of the 1990s changed that very quickly. At the same time, Wineries can't follow the same playbook they did with the boomers. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that Dan had some opinions on the subject, too. And he's actually had some success at attracting younger consumers to his brand. The strength of wine, to me, is this ability, and we've seen this for thousands of years, of bringing people together to open a bottle of wine at a table and to enhance conversation, to not only have conversation about the wine, but bring that to the next level of communication with the um, with, the, with the people you're sharing the wine with. I stopped thinking of my wines being precious, and I thought about who was drinking them because there's not a single person on the planet that wakes up in the morning and wants, thinks about Masakan other than me. And no offense to all of my peers in the industry, no one wakes up in the morning thinking about your wine brand. 
except for you. I think as, as the first thing you learn as a budding wine connoisseur is that most European wines that you're drinking are blended. That when you drink a Bordeaux-based wine, it's rare that it's 100% a single variety of Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot. And I think once you start to realize that wine doesn't have to be singular and it's of a place that is representative of a style, then you can your mind is quickly opened up to the idea that you don't need to be drinking Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. You're drinking Napa Valley white wine, Napa Valley red wine. And I think that, to me, is probably the one thing that we haven't done as a community in the 15 years I've been here to convince people that this is the greatest red wines in the world. Does it need to be Cabernet Sauvignon? No. It's Napa Valley. We're going to continue to do what we do best, which is make delicious red wine. The problem with Napa Valley is if they were cheaper, no other wine would exist because they are so delicious and everyone would want to drink them. Let's kick it to another part of wine's future, though, labeling. Wine is an agricultural product, and for the most part, it's made naturally. Grapes, yeast. Yet there's no nutritional or ingredient labeling on a bottle. Is that something that's going to change? No, I think it needs to. And the European Union is planning to mandate labels, which means that U.S. wineries looking to sell to European consumers will have to add them. But I also think it's an opportunity for wineries. Recent surveys found that younger consumers think hard seltzer, which is fermented sugar, carbonated water, and fruit flavors, is actually healthier than wine. There's also this belief that wine is full of calories and sugar, when most dry wine is less than 2 grams of sugar and about 120 calories a glass. Wine, even mass-produced wine, is a lot less processed than most food and drinks. It just doesn't get the credit it deserves for that. From vineyard to bottle, we've got climate change. We've got the millennials that we're sort of waiting for them to blossom into consumers, hopefully. We've also got wine labeling. There's a lot going on into the future of wine, and thanks for traveling to the future with us today, Mitch. We're going to see you right back here next episode, very much in the present, where we'll be talking about wine and health. Looking forward to it, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, if I can just figure out how to get this DeLorean back up to 88 miles per hour. Mm, Well played. (laughs) While Mitch is uh, heading back to the present, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring us, James, but right now, we've arrived at the end of another episode. The March issue of Wine Spectator includes not just our cover story on the future of wine and James's Bordeaux tasting report, but we've also got senior editor Tim Fish's report on Washington State and its latest crop of world-class Cabernets, Syrahs, and more coming out of Walla Walla Valley. If you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. James, care to let everyone know what we're lining up for our next episode? I'd be happy to, Rob. We'll be covering our April 30, 2023 issue of Wine Spectator, including Bruce Sanderson's annual Piedmont tasting report. We've got that wine and wellness overview with Mitch Frank and another visit from Dr. Vinny. Plus more, more. More, always more. And how about an exclusive <laughs> wine pick to tide us over till then? I've got one of those. My sneak peek wine of the week is a white Bordeaux. White Bordeaux is generally based on Sauvignon Blanc with Simeon and Muscadel playing supporting roles. And one of the best value white Bordeaux out there is the Chateau Doisy d'Ain Bordeaux White 2021. I gave it 91 points and it's priced at 30 bucks a bottle. 
Now, this is handled by Jean-Jacques Dubaudieu. He's ably following in the footsteps of his legendary father, Denny, as he handles the family estates now. This bottle happens to be a pure Sauvignon Blanc, 100% Sauvignon Blanc, and it's a very taut, piercing wine, lots of chalk, lemon pith, fleur de sel notes, and it's got a lengthy pinpoint finish. Now, it'll plump out with a little bit of aging in bottle, two to three years if that's your preference. Either way, though, you pull a cork on that, you put out some fresh oysters, and it's mm. a perfect way to kick back with the latest issue of Wine Spectator. Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.